When there are tough times, I've learned that I'm not tough enough. The Word of God says, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Please catch this. Here we go. You can do this. She's just a girl. People talk to girls every day. Your mom's a girl. I can't take this anymore, Jane. I've got half my staff on furloughs, and you're asking me to reduce headcount again. Oh, foot. Come on. I was wondering if you would be interested in dinner with me for dinner with me. I can't be part of this anymore. It's, it's unfair. Economics, yeah, I sit behind you. I like your shampoo, not, not that I smell you. Or that you smell bad, it's good, I, you smell good. Again, not that I smell you. Hi. Hi. Hey, Maggie, it's Tom, me, it's, it's Tommy, it's Tom. Thomas, Maggie. Tommy, dinner. Get some. Do you really want to be an understudy the rest of your life? Let's go. How are we going to pay our bills? She is never going to say yes. I can't do this. How do they expect this from me? It is not enough time. I can do all things. All things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hi, Maggie. My name is Tommy. Your question in class about opportunity cost was really impressive. I would like to take this opportunity to buy you dinner tonight. Jane, I quit. Yes. Amen. The sermon lesson this morning is taken from Acts chapter 27. And verses 13 through 26 are up on the screen. Now this is a long lesson, so you have to be patient. It's only a piece of the story, but a pertinent piece. And so I ask you to read it along with me. Together, please. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose, so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete, close to the shore. But soon a violent wind, called the Northeaster, rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught and could not be turned head-on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting it up, 
they took measures to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run on the surface, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard, and on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and thereby avoided this damage and loss. I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we will have to run aground on some island. Friends, God always blesses the reading and the hearing of the Word. It has been 40 years since the Dodgers were admired and feared. They are in first place. Do you know that? They also have the largest payroll in the National League. They have the most lucrative television contract in baseball. They draw the best of any team in baseball at home. And on the road, they draw better than anybody else. Out of the last 50 games, they have won 42. The Dodgers are doing great. Now, earlier in the year, the chaplain of the Dodgers was speaking here, and we said we need to pray for the Dodgers because they were in such bad shape. You can quit praying. They're doing fine. <laughs> what we know is good baseball in Los Angeles is good for baseball all over the United States and Canada. The captain of this Alexandrian ship that was headed to Italy also thought he had a great team. And he thought they could handle most anything that was coming their way. Now, Julius was a centurion in the Roman army. He was assigned to the Apostle Paul. His assignment was, you escort the Apostle Paul to Rome. It's important that he get there. In fact, there was probably money on the head of Julius because they needed Paul to make it to Rome. Why was that important? The Apostle Paul was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. He was also a Christian, a Christ one. And he preached everywhere he went that Jesus was the Messiah. He made no apology for it. And when he preached with the power of the gospel, Amazing things began to happen, and people got all stirred up, and people got angry, and people got threatened, and so he was indicted. And as he moved through the Roman legal system, he kept saying to them, I'm not just a Jew, I'm not just a Christian, I'm also a Roman citizen, and I have a right to the emperor. And that's what he insisted on, and so he ends up making this trip to Rome to appeal to the emperor pertinent 
to his innocence. So Julius, the centurion protecting Paul, gets on board with Paul a very cumbersome ship out in the Adriatic. It's a grain ship, 140 feet long, about 35 feet wide, a draft of about 33 feet. Minimal control on the ocean. They had two paddle rudders. That was the best they had. Those things were impotent against a raging storm. They were impotent against a powerful wind. And yet that's all they had. One mast, one big square sail, so they couldn't head into the wind. All they could do was go with the wind. So Paul's on this ship with Julius and a whole bunch of other people, and he's headed to Italy. Now, what happens? They have an amazing storm. Now, we're not talking about a little thunder shower in the afternoon. This is a storm that goes on for days and days. And the Apostle Paul is caught up in this, this thing along with all of these sailors, and they did the best they could. They wrapped the hull with housers, and they used winches to tighten the thing. And they were hopeful that this tight little package might be able to survive the storm. Now, the captain was frozen in fear, no question. The centurion and all the other soldiers on board the ship, their paranoia began to perk. They knew their lives were at stake. The tumult of the sea was just overwhelming for them. And it threatened the sanity of these seasoned sailors. It also threatened the tenacity of these Roman soldiers. Now look, Paul was a veteran traveler in the Mediterranean. He knew that part of the world very well. And he had said to them, whatever you do, don't try to sail now. They paid no attention to him. There was a gentle breeze from the south. They decided, oh no, let's go for it. Paul said, no, this is not the time to do it. It was late October. Julius was anxious to get to Rome with Paul. He wanted to get there before the winter, probably because he was going to get some money for showing up. And the captain of the ship, he wanted to get his cargo of grain to Rome because he too was ready for a bonus. Financially, he would benefit from it. So what did they start to do? Well, caution was thrown to the wind. They sailed away and hit a terrific nor'easter. And this thing went on for days, obviously. Now you know that in the first century, navigation was by the sun and the stars. And when this storm hit, the clouds moved in, and there was no way they could navigate via the sun and the stars. So they were simply left at the will of the sea. They had absolutely no control. They couldn't navigate. The gale tossed them around. They were like a little toothpick on the ocean. Now, there were 276 people on board. And if you're in a storm like that, in a small ship, what happens? People get, people get seasick. Have you ever been seasick? Oh, my soul, I'm vulnerable to seasickness. And have you ever been next to somebody that was seasick? Bad deal. You don't want that. 276 on this ship. How many of them do you think were seasick? Oh, my soul. Maybe most of them. And so they were throwing not just their cookies overboard, but also the cargo and some of their gear. 
They were frantically trying to sta stabilize this little ship because it really looked like the thing was going to get swamped and they would instantly sink. They were willing to give up anything to stay alive. Here's what it says in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They felt their fate was inevitable. They knew that they were just going to die. Now, in that part of the world, you saw the word Sirtis, S-Y-R-T-I-S, in the text. Sirtis sands were well known off the coast of North Africa, and it was really a graveyard for many ships. And they knew they were in that territory, and they knew they were vulnerable to the Sirtis sands, and so they were permeated with fear, the captain, the crew, and all the prisoners, with the exception of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul believed in the providence of God. He believed that because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he was given a task to share the gospel with the world, and he felt it was his job to go all the way to the emperor in Rome and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, to affirm to him that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So Paul's determined that they're going to get there. He is not one bit intimidated. Here's what it says in verses 23 and 24. Now it's a little long, but hang in there. He says, The men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete, and thereby avoided this damage and loss. Don't you love somebody who says, I told you so. And that's exactly what Paul did. I told you so. You should have listened to me. And then he says, I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. You're going to lose the ship, but you'll survive. And then he tells them this. Now you can just if this didn't spook these guys, I don't know what would. For last night there stood by me an angel of God. And it's the angel of the God to whom I belong and the one whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. The irony is this. Paul's a prisoner on this ship. He's a passenger on the ship. And he takes command of the ship. And over the howling wind to this cowering crew, he says, God spoke to me. And guess what? We're going to lose the ship, but we're not going to lose any of you. And you need to trust me. God's going to take care of us, and we're going to survive this thing. The sailors knew they were approaching land because they could hear the breakers. So they started to do some soundings. The first sounding gave them 120 feet. The next sounding was 90 feet. So they knew they were headed for land in some form or fashion. And so they threw out four anchors. They prayed for daylight. What they didn't know is they were just off the coast of Malta. Now an interesting thing happened. The storm began to break. They could see the shore and it looked like there was a beach there by Malta. And what happens? A couple of the sailors lower the lifeboat and pretend that they're going to plant more anchors. Well, they're faking it because they're going to take off in the lifeboat and leave the rest of them in the, on their own. So Paul catches on, calls them back, insists they come back on the boat, and insist that they cut the line to the lifeboat so that they watch it float away. Paul calls 
a meeting. Now I knew he was a Presbyterian. <laughs> Presbyterians have meetings all the time. Somebody did a study and they figured out in the churches of America we average 360,000 meetings every day. So if the kingdom of God was going to come by meetings it would have been here long ago. Meetings. I don't think they're an invention of the devil but it's close let me tell you. So Paul, what does he do? He calls a meeting and he proposes, of all things, breakfast. What? That's exactly what he proposed. Let me read it to you. He urged all of them to take some food. He said, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been in suspense and remaining without food. See, I told you they were seasick. Fourteen days without eating? You bet they were sick. And you've eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will help you survive for none of you will lose a hair from your heads. After he said this, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. That should have a familiar ring to you. He took the bread, gave thanks to God, broke it, and they began to eat. Then all of them were encouraged and took food for themselves all 276. They had lightened the ship to the best of their ability. So now they get this speech from Paul. He proposes that they eat, that they trust God, and what do they do? They cut the lines to the four anchors. And they raise the square sail. And they say, okay, let's go for the shore. So the wind picks up. The ship starts to head for the shore. It, of course lodges in a piece of land that penetrated the sea and the bow was stuck. And the stern of the ship was taking a terrific beating from the waves and it started to break apart. What is amazing is that some of the Roman soldiers on board proposed that they kill the prisoners. Julius, Paul's protector, says no way we're going to get this guy to Rome no matter what. Sure enough, none of the prisoners were killed. None of the crew was lost. And what they said was, you can see the beach from here. Those of you that can swim, go for it. And those of you who can't swim, grab a plank and hang on for dear life and hope you get washed up on the beach. That's what they did. And the scripture says every one of them made it to shore safely. But the story doesn't end there. They're now on Malta. They're on the beach. It's pouring rain and it is really cold. So the citizens of Malta are most gracious and they build a huge bonfire. Paul, trying to be a good citizen, is out helping collect some wood for the fire and a snake nails him on the hand. And everybody there sees that snake hanging off his hand and they know it's a poisonous snake. So they're waiting for him to swell up and die. But he doesn't. So they begin to discern that there's something very special about this guy called Paul. And they started to listen to him as he witnessed to them. Publius owned all of Malta. He ruled the whole deal. Publius had a father that was very ill. He had dysentery among a variety of other illnesses. And so Publius says to Paul, would you be kind enough to come to my father and just pray for him, lay hands on him. And Paul goes and he prays over this man who is ill 
and there's a miraculous healing. So what happens next? They start to bring everybody in Malta that's got an illness to the Apostle Paul, and Paul has an amazing healing ministry right there on Malta. Here's the question. What do you do in the midst of your dark night of the soul? What do you do when you're in the midst of the storm of despair? What do you do with 3 a.m. angst? I get 3 a.m. angst. I lie there and get overwhelmed with the agenda, all the things I'm supposed to do, all the things I need to do, all the things I'd like to do. What do we do when we're in that kind of a situation? What keeps your ship off the Sirtis sands? What keeps your ship off the rocks of doubt and futility? Indulge me while I speak out of my own life. But I have four anchors that save me in the midst of 3 a.m. angst. The first is simply faith. My faith is not in a denomination, a political party, education, or financial security. My faith is in Jesus Christ. There are 365, somebody counted them, I didn't. Somebody counted them, 365 fear nots in the Bible. 365, enough for every day. And the scripture says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43. And so in the 3 a.m. angst, I have to remember that my faith is in Christ. For in Christ, we know that faith is not belief without proof. It is trust without reservation. So there's faith. Second things that ha- thing that happens to me in 3 a.m. angst is hope. My hope is that it, God is indeed in charge and that God will act in time and on God's time, not my time. And I believe with all my heart that in Jesus Christ, events are altered, lives are changed, relationships are healed, and love proves stronger than hate. We are a hope-filled people. Hope with skin on it. And hope is not what you expect. Hope is what you would never dream. So, 3 a.m. angst, in the storm of despair, faith, hope. Third thing is surrender. You know, there are times when I think I'm the general manager of the universe. And I've had a project, and I've worked very, very hard on this project, but nothing seems to be coming together. And you know, I'm lying there at 3 a.m. going, what is it that I'm doing wrong? Why isn't this working? Why aren't these people cooperating? What's the problem? And it's as if the heavens open, oh, heavens open and God looks down and goes, Dave, nice try. <laughs> Dave, why don't you try trusting my spirit? The Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there are times when I simply have to surrender and say, okay, Lord, I've given it my best shot. The rest has to be in your hands. I trust your spirit. Philippians 1.6 says, 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. You can trust that. So faith, hope, surrender. The fourth thing is thanks, thanksgiving. At 3 a.m., I often pour out my prayers of thanks. Thanks for people like you. Thanks for this church. Thanks for its history. Thanks for its outreach, its impact. Thanks for the ministry of Mark Brewer. But thanks for Brewer means we pray for his present ministry. We give thanks for Mark. He left here of his own volition. He felt called of God to another ministry. We need to celebrate that and say thank you, Mark, for what you've done. And God bless you wherever you are today and whatever it is you're trying to do for the kingdom's sake. But we also need to give thanks for the PNC. The PNC is the Pastor Nominating Committee. That's the committee that is searching for a new pastor for Bel Air. And that PNC needs your thanks because these people are doing a lot of work and their work is just beginning to crank up. They will hit the throttle in terms of a search in September. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray that God will lead them to the right person to come in here and be the pastor of Bel Air Presbyterian. Faith, hope, then surrender, and thanks. Paul, remember, broke the bread and gave thanks to God. I'll leave you with this. It's from Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt is the chair of Google. You've heard of Google. You've heard of Google. Yes, thank you. Now this is what Schmidt said not too long ago. He said, don't let technology rule you. What? Don't let technology rule you. Isn't that his world? Don't let technology rule you. And then he said this, take your eyes off the screen and look into the eyes of someone you love. And then listen to this line. Life is not lived in the glow of a monitor. Life is not lived in the glow of a monitor. This is Schmidt from Google. Life is not lived in the glow of a monitor. Life is about who you love and how you live. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. I trust that. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, in those storms of despair, help us to recognize that you have not left us. Your word says you will neither leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for that assurance. But in those moments when we feel so all alone, help us, O God, to be a people of faith, hope, surrender, and thanks. Help us to trust your spirit. We ask this. In the healing, saving name of Jesus Christ, amen.